From Imagine a Place Productions, this is the Design Pop, a dealer designer podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Cephas, and I'm here to help you build a design career that you love by learning and understanding perspectives from within our industry. Whether you're a furniture enthusiast or just curious about growing and learning more to apply to your own career, I'm glad you're here. Come on, let's get started. Since launching this podcast, the interviews I have done have mostly been virtual interviews. Last month, we released one live from CET Experience, and that is not the only one. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Julia Machado in person. Julia and I have known each other since around 2010. I'm quite embarrassed to say that I do not actually remember meeting her, but I do remember getting many email questions from her about technology best practices. I mean, really frequently. (laughs) She is a self-described squeaky wheel. And that, amongst other many impressive qualities, has propelled her into the role of design director for Price Modern. This interview was so important for me to do in person because I knew we had a lot to say. We've spent a decent amount of time together over the years, and it actually feels a bit more like a chat amongst friends who admit our personal and professional strengths and challenges. You will notice that the recording quality of this interview is a little different than the others that have been done from the controlled environment of my home office. Truth is, our podcast kit was lost in the mail, and this was recorded as a part of a very last-minute backup plan. We have echoes, we have dishes clanging in the background, and a couple other little dings. I frankly thought about re-recording this, but the truth is, the nuggets of information here are awesome. If I was a designer or manager, I would still want to listen, because it's real. No over-editing here. I hope that I'm not being presumptuous, and that's exactly how you feel too. First and foremost, uh, office design was not my forte in college. It was the only (laughs) B I got ever in any of my studios. It was not my favorite professor. Um, I was like, I'm never designing cubicles. And so I get into my first, my first job out of college was at a dealership where I was touching furniture quotes. It was 2007. Nobody was getting jobs anywhere. And if I could touch a furniture quote, at least I was in the industry. Six months later, I kept poking up into the design, the design department, and they said, no, we really don't need any other designers. So over drinks with a friend of mine, I found out that his dad works at a dealership, and he's like, oh, yeah, my dad does that. And so fast forward two weeks, I now work at a competitor, direct competitor. And I think the creativeness for me kind of went away very quickly because it was, all right, here's your AutoCAD plan. You're pulling from a catalog of numbers and you're pulling in connectors and corner blocks. I didn't even know what they were. And you're pulling them in into a 2D software that's black and white. Where's the creative in that? Like, I just didn't have it. It wasn't scratching that itch. And then in comes you and your curly hair. And you're like, my name's Alexandra. And I want to talk to everybody about CET. And I was like, what is the CET? And it was just this, it was a creative side to see 2D and 3D and color. And it was like, oh, now it could be fun. But I don't know how much longer I would have lasted, honestly, without software. Then did you actually start using it right away? Or I don't even remember. How did you get trained? What did you do? It was 101. It was... From the very beginning, I was super excited to have one colored typical rendering at the end of the day. Like looking back at that now, how do we have fly throughs and water in the background moving and people? And I just, I never saw it going to where it was, but it was definitely a, a game changer for us. I mean, just going from hand rendering. I remember my first dealer, it was like, oh, hey, we need something. Could you just draw this up? And I, I'm sure you did the same where I would pop it up in 3D and AutoCAD. Yep. I'd print the wireframe, yep. take trace and yep. then markers 
And I would just start to like go ahead and just yep. go on top of that with my little Prismacolor markers. And that was what I considered a rendering. Then you go from that, all of a sudden you can produce even something very rudimentary. Mm-hmm. It's shocking. It is. We used to have a senior prank that for the freshmen coming in would say, oh, well, did you buy the stipple spray? They're like, the what? I was like, yeah, the stipple spray. It makes a little dot so that like it fades into oh, your Oh, seriously? Rendering. I never use that. Yeah, it's not a real thing. But it was just something to get them to like, oh, I'm here for the stipple spray. <laughs> There's no such thing. You got to hand color it. And now everyone's like, what do you mean color, hand color? You don't do that. That's hilarious. Because I, yeah, I totally would have fallen for that. I'm so gullible. Oh, I would have yeah, been like, oh, yeah, I'll go find it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> So what was it about when you say that you wouldn't have made it? What was it about the work that you felt was just super hard or maybe even continue to feel? And, and I like the, the engineering thinking behind it, putting something together. Everyone compares it to the Legos or whatever. Um, but it was missing the creative side of it. I couldn't see it. And it was just a panel in 2D and there was no 3D until you're going to that wireframe, right? So yeah. um, I wanted to have a bit more impact in it. And I think looking back now, so many years later, um, being part of this industry has been so much more exciting because of the pandemic, right? Everyone said, mm-hmm. oh, what did it do to your job? Well, it made it exciting. It made people look at the, why are you going to the office and what are you doing? And when you tell them that you design offices, they're like, oh, what are you seeing? What, what is this person doing? And it's, it's a new elevator conversation instead of, so it's sunny outside. It's like, what is your hybrid policy? And it's bringing, it's been such a hot topic lately. It's been fun to be in the industry. Oh, it, that cracks me up because I think of, um, because of the movie, The Office. Yeah. How when I first started telling people, yeah, I'm an interior designer, but for, there's always that moment when you meet somebody on the street, like my next door neighbor works for Gensler. And I remember when I met her, I was like, oh, what do you do for a living? And she very, got very cautious and goes, uh, well, I'm a designer, but not for houses. Now, by the way, anyone who's listening to this has had that moment at least once, if not 10,000 times, right? Pillow picker. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're like, you have to explain it. And I remember being like, yeah, so I am a designer for offices. And they're like, like what? Cubicles? So much more than that. I know. And I'm like, that sounds dirty. Like whenever they said it, it was like, oh, I don't know. It just gave me this really bad reaction all the time. And all I could think of was the office every single time. All the jokes that go with it. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. But you think of like the funkiest spaces that you've been able to work on, right? No one thinks of those. No. No one thinks of the many offices that are published or spaces, I should say, that are published, yep. you know, in magazines that maybe even your company has worked on. And then you watch all the TV shows today and it's like, oh, who's that? Who's that president sitting in what chair? What chair are they in in that office? And this sitcom and what's their, what's, I flip chairs all the time. What conference table are they sitting at? And you look at all the little details around you. It's, it's hey, I'm taking it as a win that my husband knows what a Zodi is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yes, we have two of them in our office, but yeah. either way, if we're watching a show, he's like, hey, that's a Zodi. I know that one. It's like a source of pride, not just for me it now, is. but for my family members. Yes. Yes. <laughs> my husband's constantly saying, oh, well, how many box box files do they need? And it's like, he's just so proud of knowing what a box box file is. Well, and you've heard me joke. I still to this day, I think back to those early days and being like, what is an aligner light block? And that's yeah. a very Hayworth-esque type of term that both of us have been able yes. to bond over. But the truth is, what are these things? Yeah. Does anyone really know what anything is? I don't know. You just have to, it's like you figure it out. It's a live and learn. It is. So any type of recognition, if that is a chair, a box box file, or all the way to an aligner light block, all good stuff. Um, so what was, what, how did you get to management? 
Oof. Um, I never thought it would be this kind of management. I never saw myself in this kind of management. Um, my boss had brought me in one day and he said, what do you think about being a, a director or manager? How many years in were you? Hold on. I'm going to pause this. <laughs> How many so years in were you? Seven years in the first dealership. And then I'm now nine in my second. Um, and I would say it was maybe four into that. So okay. at least after 10. I would say after 10 years of being in the industry, for sure. But I mean, that's still actually... Uh, younger person in the industry yes. for the most part. Yes. I because agree. I feel like since there are very few design leader positions out there, normally it is yeah. the people who have been around for a gazillion years that then get promoted. It's the most senior, most um, accurate designer that would be offered that. But I don't think that it's necessarily just because you're a master in that field that then you're ready for, for management. Cause I think that's a different mindset too. It's a totally different mindset. Yeah. So, okay. So he comes to you and says, what do you think about management? And I was like, no, I don't want to fire anybody. And literally, that was like the end of the conversation. And like, I was like, I just want to plan events for the team. And I want to make sure we go to showroom visits and make sure we have enough CEUs by the end of the year. And then I got home and I was like, did you just shut down your growth? Like, why did you say no to management? Like, who, why, what? So I ended up sending him a text message. I was like, I want to talk about this a little bit further. And, and maybe, yes, I think I can go past that. And he's like, well, yes, firing people is a part of it, but that doesn't make up your day. Hopefully that work, happens like right? once every couple of years or Correct. something. And it's not an everyday occurrence that it's not the majority of your job. It is just literally the hardest part of that job is figuring out that somebody's not a good fit or they don't want to be there. Or so I think that, yes, my mind went there first, but, um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I got to stick with it and grow into that position that I am. Of course. I mean, that's Again, so few positions are out there to be able to officially grow that it's amazing that the opportunity comes. But when you said that story, in my mind, the number one thing that I thought of, though, is how many designers would have the exact same reaction? How many humans, not just designers, would have that exact same right. reaction of, I don't want to fire someone, but then wouldn't go home and send the text? Right. And then may regret it later. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm a very uh, squeaky wheel, <laughs> as I'm sure people know. Um, and it was just constantly being an advocate for what we were doing in the design department and constantly going to management to say, hey, we can do this better, or why are we getting pushed so hard? And I think that's where they saw the management possibility instead of just, hey, you can handle 15 projects at a time and do them accurately, because I think that's a different a different path than a management path of people. Maybe it's a project management path, but it's just... No, but I like that. And, and why couldn't a designer move into project management? I Absolutely. mean, some of the really successful dealers that I've seen have actually cross-pollinated quite a bit, mm -hmm. where I know you and I have talked about it before. Is it like, we know a couple of them maybe, but the installer who really gets excited about value engineering and specification, and maybe they are trained on technology and they're moved into design. Yep. Or maybe it is a designer going into project management. You know, sales is, that's a whole nother thing. I think there's this assumption of if you're a designer, therefore you may someday be this incredible seller. Right. Uh, I think that's a leap. Um, it's we have to, a skill set for sure. It and is. And each has are, it or wants it. That's just it. Do you have it? Do you want it? I tried it. I tried it once. <laughs> How'd it go? Um, I would say maybe I didn't give it a fair shake, but I definitely got my feet wet. Um, I was managing during the day. I was production designer at night and then selling on the side kind of deal. And so I'm very appreciative for the opportunities I have where I am that they allowed me to dabble into sales to see if it was something I'd be interested in. And at the end of the day, it's just, it's, I don't have that sales bone in my body. Um, I'm just excited to have that final design for them and an accurate spec. And then it's like, okay, what's your GP? 
I, I, I don't know. I really like them, and I don't know if they can afford this. And it's just <laughs> I don't have that selling bone. I just don't. Um, but I did take a lot away from seeing it from a sales perspective. I think that you look at your specs differently because it's your paycheck it's hitting, right? So yeah. how do you translate that into the designer who's creating the spec that's not directly affecting their paycheck? Um it was a lot of aha moments of, hey, we didn't talk about it being a phased project until the very end. Well, as a designer, you want to know that up front and in the beginning, because if it's phased, you're going to spec it and order it differently and identify it in your drawing differently. Correct. So there were a lot of takeaways I had from that, not just the fact that sales wasn't for me or isn't for me right now, um, but just the way that I look at my projects moving forward. Well, I mean, sales is the easiest target to be like, they didn't ask about phasing. They didn't ask about all the yep. truth is... Even if you ask, sometimes the client doesn't know either. I mean, I I remember coming up against that too, where they'd be like, yeah, you know, I really do want to see this as a reconfigure and as new product. And I remember getting the request of phasing, you know, this way and this way for minimal disruption. The other one would be more disruptive, but might be a cost savings. It was like so many, and you just, it's so easy to get angry at salespeople because they come back to the office and are translating it as, here's what I heard. And you're like, but they ask the questions. If you were there, then maybe you actually hear that they did ask the question. Yes. And that's where I'm a, I'm a very big advocate of our designers being upfront with the sales folks during that initial meeting to get the questions answered that they have on the project. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I think is more valuable to, uh, to a designer standpoint and the project process moving forward than having your designer not have time to go to the meeting, but they have time to discount and apply GPs that aren't theirs. So did you have a sales goal? As far as dollars? Yeah. No, it was more, do you like it? And and I would say, you know, your first commission check feels great. And you're like, ooh, that was unexpected. Yeah. But then it's also looking at, well, if you didn't have your, your day-to-day salary, what would that look like or how would that feel? And it's just, I don't know. It wasn't just the uncertainty for me of commission lifestyle. It was just... The whole, the whole essence of, I just don't, yeah. I think I sell, I quote unquote sell in a different way. I sell the design, but I'm not the bottom line salesperson that a dealership should have. Yeah, I understand that. Um, having sat in both roles and I have the sales propensity, mm-hmm. I tend to get way more excited about the sales part <laughs> than I do the design part. And I, I really wish that that wasn't my, yeah, yeah I, it's funny, like what you were, what you're naturally given or, you know, the influences that you have in your life sometimes aren't what you anticipate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking back in my career, like early, early on, um, just being like, I'm going to be a designer forever. Like, this is what I literally want to do forever. Yep. And now I look at it and go, man, I had so much more fun in sales. Do I think every designer would have more fun in sales? Absolutely not. No. no. And in fact, I think the majority probably are able to resonate with your story. And I would say it took me from the management path, it took me a very, very long time to let go of my production. And that's something that, you know, I, I swore I'd never leave the production side of it, never leave the the um, drawing and specification side because I feel like I would lose touch with what I'm asking my designers to do. Um, to this day, I still struggle with saying no to a project, mm-hmm. but I, it's better for me to spend my time advocating for the designers, um, figuring out a better process for the designers, being that liaison between the sales and designers instead of, let me just take a project off your list because I know I can do more in other ways. Uh So I still dabble in the design and spec side when a designer's on vacation or when something pops up that needs, you know, to happen really quickly so that I'm still in touch with it all. Mm -hmm. Um, But it came down to, I was managing at day and production at night and it just, it wasn't a good balance for my 
personal life either. Yeah, and then you had a little sales in there too and <laughs> really shaking up <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> Just why not? Well, but it, it does, again, it provides perspective. And I think of the amount of teams where there is that co-shadowing mm-hmm. as part of the onboarding process. I used to always get, you know, as much, again, a lighter light blocks or whatever it is, whatever component it is. I remember having to go out on site um, and not just my onboarding as a designer, but my onboarding as a salesperson, I had to go on site and see what an install was like. And truly, I thought it was boring. I mean, if I'm honest, my attention span is not that great. <laughs> so after an hour, I'm like, okay, great. I see they're carrying more panels and then setting them up. Yeah. But there were those little like minutia, like bolts or something that I would have to spec that I didn't know about unless I was on site. Yeah. But I think there are very few that actually consider the reverse of having a designer physically understand what it's like to be in a sale salesperson's shoes and then vice versa of, you know, I mean, have you ever heard of a a salesperson ever sitting in a designer's shoes? I don't even know how you would emulate that. I I, no, you're right. That's a really good point. Is it considered backwards? Right. Is it, I, cause I, I, the stigma of going from design to sales as a quote unquote promotion, I don't think it's a promotion. I think it's just a different path because there's so many other paths we can go down, but I personally haven't heard of a salesperson going into design. I've heard of someone who's a designer that went to sales and back again. I've heard that a few times yep. where they think the grass is maybe greener. Yep. They go and try it. And I think everyone likes the money. I mean, I don't think sure. that's the issue. Sure. I do think it's really tough, though, for people to understand what they're, like, what motivates them. Is it visibility? Is it money? Is it yeah. Yeah, whatever? Everyone has their way to feel validated. Mm-hmm. And money is a great instantaneous motivator, but sometimes is not the long-term solution for happiness. And I think that post-COVID, we've realized that flexibility is a higher motivator for some folks and others. And I think it's also very dependent on where you are in your life. Do you have young kids? Do you have older kids? Is it an empty nest situation where you just want to get out and and do more things during the day? Or do you want to go into an office, do your work and go home at the end of the day? What point in your career, you know, are you, are you currently at and where do you want to experience that? That's really interesting. Um, Because I think you're right about that. And that's, I mean, I, I really believe it's my um, my daughter's birthday is tomorrow yes. and, um, I'm not going to be with her and it's hard because we already celebrated her birthday this weekend. We're going to keep celebrating her all week long after I get home. It, this is life, right? Yeah. It's never perfect. Yeah. But what's so crazy is when I think about it, I'm sad. I'm going to miss it in a lot of ways for selfish reasons, because I feel like, yes, we added this beautiful life, mm-hmm. um, to the world. But on the flip side, it really is about, the fact that she changed me, she helped evolve yep. me and my thinking. And I think the, to the point also on, you know, grandparenthood could be, like you said, it could yep. be somebody who's older and is like an empty nester or, you know, is a grandparent, wants to be actively involved. Yep. There's so many of these other aspects. Everybody has something, you know, and that's right. And we are humans. We have to look at the human element. <laughs> exactly. And I've got designers anywhere between graduating college this past summer to designers that could have already retired by now. And I've got designers that need to go to their kids' doctor's appointments. I've got designers that need to go to their parents' doctor's appointments. I've got designers that their dogs are their, are their children, right? So it's just having that respect for them that there's, you know, a human behind that specification role as well. Yeah. How do you keep up with managing where people are? I mean, you mentioned the excitement around the pandemic. I think there's also has to be um, some really challenging things as a manager and as a leader to try and figure out what the right balance is for everybody. 
So we have a hybrid policy right now. We have mandatory two days in the office, uh, two specific days, Monday and Thursday, and then the third day is on you, and then up to two days remote. And that's something that we're very flexible with, you know, depending on schedules or if you have a pre-existing, you know, weekly event that's going to happen or you need to be home for your kids. Commuting in the DMV is a factor in and of itself. I mean, you ask a Baltimore person to go to DC or DC to go to Baltimore. It's like flying to another country. That's the commuting. <laughs> Nothing's changed since post pandemic. Hey people, right. listen to some podcasts. <laughs> yes. Which I've got a couple to recommend. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think, uh, uh, time management, time management with people, getting people in the office, you know, it is a struggle. We, we sell offices. So why is it hard to request people to be in the office? But there is, I think, a point of, you know, there's benefits to being in the office and there's benefits to being home and there's both sides and just finding that flexibility for their schedules was important. I mean, other than being, there are so many of those people who are, you know, maybe maybe they're full-time remote or an independent contractor. That's one thing. But of the people that you do expect to come in and participate in the hybrid work, what are the reasons that you think they enjoy being in the office and the reasons that you think they may enjoy working from home? I think the working from home would be the heads down time, right? What we do is very technical. I mean, you're looking at every nut and bolt. You're looking at every letter and a part number could mean something different. It could mean a stool or a chair height. And then a quantity of 20 will just throw your entire project if you get that one mm-hmm. number wrong. Um, I think that the time spent in the office, we're creative. We want to, you know, we're, we want to be there to absorb the banter of what's going on or what software issues you're having that I'm having, or come look at my screen. Have you ever seen this before? Um, I think a really good example of that is the way that our office was originally designed. Designers were spread out across the whole floor plan. And then, you know, we were hooting and hollering down the hallways. And then they said, okay, put the designers down on one side because yeah. we just, we feed off each other. You know, we might have one earbud in, but then the other ears listening to what's going on. And, oh, I had a conference table that had to meet those requirements too. Have you looked at this one? And so um, I think it's that creative collaboration that, you know, we all seek. When they're at home, are you worried about them like doing laundry? During work time? <laughs> I think it's great. If you can knock out four minutes of going downstairs, putting a load in and coming back up so that you are not stressed by the end of the week to, okay, it's Friday, it's four o'clock. I have so much to do this weekend and a birthday party to go to. And also yeah. it's just, if you can simultaneously do that, do it. If it's, I think that that's so important. It's a mindset and it's okay. <laughs> I know to me, I'm like, even if somebody, so I think of the days when I'm the most productive it's probably because I started the day with a workout. It's probably because I started the day with a cup of coffee. I start yeah. my days kind of early because I, with that cup of coffee in my hand, I can get a lot done. Yeah. But I also know that I tend to burn out as the day moves on. Yes. And so, you know, it doesn't matter that I might have childcare until 5 or 6 p.m. It might be 4 p.m. where I'm going, oh my gosh, okay, I just accomplished all this stuff. I didn't even take a break. It's okay. Now, it's not five o'clock. It's okay. Right. You've been like, a full day. So I've started to take a lot more phone calls, like walking around the neighborhood. Like at four, if it's 4 p.m. and someone calls That's me, chances great. are it's because I'm going to be like, no Zoom. Yep. We're walking around the neighborhood as I'm talking to you because I need to be moving. Yes. Um, and it kind of helps revive my thought. Yep. But there are so many people that you talked to out there that are like, oh my gosh, the laundry. Frankly, like I'm kind of the same way where I'm like, laundry takes four minutes. And if it helps me clear my brain yeah. to walk down two flights of stairs, do my laundry and come back upstairs and keep yep. working. Yep. I don't know. Maybe I'm more productive after the laundry's done. You need that break. You need that mental break. I would say working from home for me doesn't work. It just doesn't. I burnt out so much faster during COVID because 
oh, I'll just go downstairs with a cup of coffee before everybody wakes up because my office is just right there. Oh, I'll, I'll pop out. I'll put dinner on the, in the oven and come back, which my husband would probably be laughing like you're actually cooking dinner. You don't cook dinner. But, <laughs> you know, after dinner, you you put, every, you put the kids to bed and then it's like, oh, well, my office is right there. I'll just answer a few more emails. And then you just lose track. And I just would burn, you know, the candle on both ends and all day. And this yeah. That's the, I don't think that's a productive use of time either. I think that if you get on a treadmill and you walk for an hour, it feels great, right? Maybe you're revived. If you get on a treadmill and you sprint, marathon, run for an hour, you're exhausted. You were productive. You got a lot of miles in, but you covered a lot of territory, but you're tapped out. And I think sometimes that our brains and the way that our projects are going and how intense things can be, we're marathoning. And so by yes. the end of 4 o'clock, it might be a day. It might not be until 5 o'clock, you know? You yeah. can't push it. I've been hearing the same thing that you just said, too, on you know, productivity in the office. It just feels like there's this trend emerging where it's not the designers don't want to be in the office. Yeah. They do crave the collaboration, and they don't want to play telephone games. The more they can hear direct words from a customer, from a coworker on what the project requirements are, the better. However, to execute that work, they may be more productive going home to tune out the noise. Yeah. On the flip side, it makes me question, are our showrooms designed correctly for designers? And that's the hardest thing. I think a showroom, a showroom to, to be able to design a showroom that meets all the design requirements that you're trying to show all of your customers and all the different industries, but then also fit your designer yeah. needs. <laughs> I mean, that's a little bit of a unicorn office as it is. And I think that's where maybe dealer designers are the perfect example of a hybrid work style. Yeah. You go in, you collaborate, you go home, you heads down, you produce. It's a good balance. There was this designer that I talked to three weeks ago that was crazy because she was telling me that they literally do a meeting every morning and they have a um, like a last and final call. So on that meeting, if a designer needs to do heads down work for that day, they're probably going to do it from home, but for exactly that reason. Yep. But they're going to tell everyone in the company, you know, at X time today, at 11 a.m. today, you can no longer contact me because I need to be heads down. And at that point, they go dark. They probably turn off notifications on their phone, turn off notifications for email, and they just work. Yeah. I love this concept, actually, because I think of how many times I'd get in the groove of as much as I dog like the fact that I'm not super strong on all the details the way that like your brain probably is. I remember when I'd get in the groove, particularly in AutoCAD days where you could actually manually place every symbol and the text to be rotated in a particular... I really liked yes. having all of that text align in mm -hmm. the exact location in every plan because it made my counts really easy. Yep. And I remember getting so jacked about like, okay, the space planning is done. I'm just going to relax in, turn on at the time, not a podcast because we didn't have them, but like yep. turn on NPR yep. and just cram and then I'd be interrupted by a salesperson saying like, hey, Alexandra, I need to tell you about this new project. I'm like, I'm not there yet, man. Like, I'm not there yet. You can't just interrupt me. I'm in the groove right now. Yep. I agree. Yeah, it's hard. You can't interrupt it. So what's the, what's the easiest part of your job as a manager? The people. I love just making personal touches on, on um, anniversaries or celebrating birthdays or, you know, accomplishments from everybody. Um, my mom is the Martha Stewart Pinterest mom before that was a thing. But you don't cook dinner. 
but I don't cook dinner. Okay. Just, well, you know, you, you, <laughs> you get parts of line somewhere. Yeah, right? You get parts and pieces <laughs> from both parents. It's okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and every every birthday was so special, and we even celebrated half birthdays, which we do with my daughter, which we did last week. Um, and <laughs> maybe I need to. Start, if I'm going to miss more birthdays, I think I need to get on that train of the half birthday. <laughs> when you have one, it's kind of you know a little easier. But um, everything was so personalized, you know, and to be able to have somebody's work and their career and their day to day routine be personalized for them, you know, what are they good at? And can you find that project that's going to suit their interests or suit their skill sets? Um, that's where I get excited about it. You know, of course, management's hard and, and it takes a lot of trust. I think, you know, mm-hmm. sending somebody home to go dark at a certain hour takes trust. It's that you're trusting them to go home and to be that production and not just do laundry or whatever, right? So there's a good balance there. But yeah, no, I just love the personal side of, of knowing each one of them. Um, there are a lot. We do have 22 designers, so yeah. it's a lot. I wish I, I could spend more time with each one of them, but yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, is the hardest part firing or is, the hard, or is there a different hardest part? I would say firing is a short-lived hardest part. Um, hardest part management-wise, just main, just staying in touch with everybody all the time, right? Because you can mm-hmm. only spread yourself out so much. Um, and that's something that we're looking at trying to, to figure out how we can divide and conquer a little bit more. Because I think the three locations also makes it a little bit challenging. Yeah, I mean, that's really... I've never worked at a dealership that has more than one location outside of a warehouse being another location. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that's like as far as trying to oversee. And even how do you encourage each of them uniquely to be their own best selves as yep. it relates to their work yep. when you're not there to, to witness them being their best selves every single right. day? Right. And it's tough. It is. And, and I'm trying to get, I mean, that's something I need to grow in, in my, my path. Um, and right now we've started to do quarterly touch points and it's just a cup of coffee. If you want, it's a, just come sit and talk to me for 15 minutes, which I usually block out on my calendar for an hour, because even if 15 <laughs> goes to 30, I still need 30 minutes to like sit, reflect, document, you know, what did we just talk about? What are we going to talk about next quarter to keep those goals moving forward and to make sure that whatever, you know, they want to move towards, I'm helping them facilitate in that direction or their pain points. How are we going to resolve them by next quarter? So I think that's where the management day-to-day stuff can really pay off. What do you do with your designers to show appreciation? We celebrate anniversaries. So it's something that I do publicly. Um, I know a lot of people aren't big fans of birthday celebrations, be it whatever reason, whatever number, uh, age they are. Um, <laughs> if, I have no problem with birthdays or no, half birthdays. If they're 25, matter, they right? want to be like, they want to be 30. And yes. if they're like 65, they want to be 35. 30. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still want to be 30. Yeah. Um, so birthdays, I, I try to make notable as well. Um, but just anniversaries and being with the company as long as they have, you know, I mean, that's a big deal. Each year you yeah. grow each kid birthday, you know, you're talking about, you know, each year with your kid is also a personal achievement. Right. Hey, I kept them alive for another year. Hey, I taught them to walk. Hey, I taught them to talk. Hey, I taught them to, you know, be independent. And so, you know, it's, it's celebrating each monumental event and maybe in the year it's a, it's a year in review, you know, let's talk about how far you've come. Um, if it's flowers on your desk, if it's, Hey, you, you like, um, succulents instead, cause yours truly could kill a plastic plant. It's just a lovely um, trait that I have. No, din- no cooking dinner and no, yeah. no plant maintenance nope. for you. No. Okay. Got it. I'm Check. painting a great picture. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that this is where, you know, it's, it is just challenging because when you look at who your mom you know, is right. And you've called your mom, Martha Stewart before. Yeah. It is very funny because I have a mom who also is a very Martha Stewart as type person, but she was also a teacher. 
The woman can cut bubble letters like you would not this was believe. Mine. That's funny. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. But I also look at like some of the strengths like my dad has too, which because he wasn't as focused at the home, I don't really use that as a, my measurement of like personal success as right. much as I do a comparison to her. Right. There's something very funny about this, isn't it? I agree. Because we should be equally like, oh, well, I don't do, I don't know. I don't do invoicing like my dad did or something, right, right. or I don't pay bills like my dad, but why are we so fixated on who cooks dinner? Who cares? <laughs> my husband cooks dinner plenty. Yeah. <laughs> Uncrustables in the, in the freezer for lunch. There's nothing wrong with this. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. You just yeah. do what you can do. Yeah. So, and I've noticed on social media, you do a great job of shouting out, like you've been at the company, you know, 14 years or congratulations to so-and-so. Yeah. I've seen you do that. I love that part of, of management is doing that personal aspect of it and putting that personal touch on things. Um, I think it's dealership size dependent too. You know, yeah. something that if you have a smaller dealership, you have a smaller team, even if it's a team within a larger dealership, right? I've seen relationships grow um, when you are one designer to one salesperson to one coordinator or what have you, whatever that small little group is that assembles, they're much more personal. Like, oh, how's your dog? I'm sorry, it was whatever happened. Or, yeah. you know, your kids' recitals yesterday, you had to leave early. You you create a more, I guess it's a deeper relationship because you're on on with everybody Monday through Friday. You're on the schedules together. You're building that relationship as opposed to, well, you're one of 18 designers I work with, right? So mm-hmm. I see a lot more appreciation happening between those smaller knit teams. Yes. So creating, maybe creating those smaller teams within a larger organization would provide you the same in-depth personal relationships that you would have with, you know, a smaller dealership who only has three designers, six salespeople, what have you. Right. It could just even be a quick, hey, thank you so much. Yeah. I think a lot of dealers tend to fall into that bucket where they're like, hey, your paycheck is your thank you. And evidence of that for me was a, a girlfriend of mine recently had her birthday. Mm-hmm. She got a $5 Starbucks card in a, a very nice birthday card. Yeah. She called me and was like, you're not going to believe this. After so many years in the workforce, I finally got <laughs> this and I just was in awe. This was so generous and not expected. Yeah. I mean, th- that's nothing, right? It's five dollars. It is yeah. a cup of coffee. Yeah. I mean, that five dollar card might buy a tall at Starbucks. Let's maybe. be clear. Like it's pumpkin spice season. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So maybe a tall for sure, not a grande. Yeah. But the thought is still there, yeah. and I just think that there is something so powerful in if it's a verbal thank you or you know a five dollar Starbucks card. But the yeah. thought is there, and that might actually help increase happiness, company culture, and beyond, right? Just bringing awareness to saying thank you for going above and beyond. You didn't have to. Maybe you're not incentivized to put in more than 40 hours, but showing that appreciation, you know, maybe that's your next t-shirt. Oh, that's nice. Have you hugged your designer today? (laughs) It's a bumper sticker. Oh, seriously. I I know somebody posted, we're running this campaign right now for the t-shirts about like, which one's your favorite. And it was people had submitted a bunch of ideas. We're voting on them. And someone said something about, you know, can you render that again? And my response on social media was, I think that should be an emoji response only. And the person said, but which, which emoji? emoji? And I was like, I don't know. And we had one with like the teeth, you know, like eek. We also had the one that's like, you know, kind of a tear. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, then there's like the gentle smile, not super excited smile, but the gentle smile, like, okay, fine. I'll do it if I have to. And I upside down smile. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, the thing is you could literally answer that with any emoji based on the day. Yep. I think a thank you is bare minimum on top of the paycheck, right? Yep, Yep. I agree. (laughs) Do they sometimes say that they have personal goals or is it mostly a professional one? 
I, I like to think that it would be both. You know, my, I have a running professional goal was to get NCIDQ certified. Yeah. I don't think at this point in my career I'm going to do it. I just, it was out there. It was a carrot. I always said I was going to do it, but I think I've gone in such a different direction that getting that wouldn't benefit where my path is going now. Um, but if that's something that they want to pursue, I'm all supportive of it. You know, I think it's a great, a great aspiration to, I mean, it's a big test. It's a big thing to accomplish. It's really big. And I'm, yes. I mean, I've publicly said it multiple times. I am not state certified, nor have I ever been state certified. I will never be NCIDQ. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky to take the lead AP test before they changed it in October of what, like 2008, oh, 2009 or something like that. I was GA, which is like green, like you're green in the green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I remember that. Cause I remember that they had all the early certifications and at the time, my dealership was really pushing it. And then all of a sudden it came down to like, hey, the test is changing. It's going to be easier now. You have to pass this and you have one month. And I'm like, okay, I can't retake this thing. I'm going to cram and take it. Took it, passed it, great. And then I went to work for Configure and never needed it anyways. <laughs> it's still back there. No, I mean, here's the thing. It's If these are goals for people that mm-hmm. they want to do, I love it. If that keeps you motivated yeah. every single day, yeah, I love that as a goal. But I think back on so much, so many of the goals that I had were so professionally driven. Like early on, I did think NCADQ would be in my future as well. Those are great. But I think back on the things that were outside of work that actually kept me more focused at work as like some sort, something that I could harness. So I remember taking a pottery class and it was like twice a week, every single week. I dug it because it felt like I was like able to let go of all this creative energy. Then when I was at work, if I had to do something like, you know, I don't know, panels and power, it felt a little bit right. better because I'm like, okay, I didn't have to be creative at work because I'm going to be creative tonight after work yep. instead. Yep. But I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on that? Because I'm wondering if you're putting too much pressure on just the job, having to do everything for everyone all the time. It is a lot. I think that there's, it's a hard boundary line to set between start and finish of when a dealer designer gets involved in a project. I think that it's also, you know, they've got to set goals for themselves as far as what part of that process do they want to be a part of? Do they want to be more upfront? Do they want to be that selling designer side by side with the seller? Do they want to be the production person? You know, Mm -hmm. when you talk about the goals and, and the future and the growth for them, they've got to like what they're doing. But I think it's important to keep reminding them, you know, what do you want to do? You know, Mm -hmm. we can be comfortable in what we're doing and comfortable is fine. It's, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but I think that there's so many young designers that are getting involved in our industry so early on straight out of college um, that it's they need to see something they need to see the growth path of it and what's next and that's not just becoming an expert in panel systems of four different manufacturers you know what's next what do you want it to be and there's so many different avenues that we can go down now between mm-hmm. the software options and um, the dabbling in the sales options and getting involved in different ways something to think about yeah, I think there's a lot to think about with it. It does take some creative uh, management. And it's, I, it's a, management's a big part of it. And I would say above my management, right? I mean, you need to have the other um, executives within your dealership being supportive of that. Because if you don't have that, it's not going to happen. So I think that's something I'm very fortunate. I've always had support from the executive level. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and that's, that's the part of those, how many designers out there are just kind of stagnant because maybe they don't have somebody who's saying, hey, would you want to be a manager? Or, hey, you want to try sales? Or yeah. Yeah, there are these other opportunities for you within the company because it does feel like there are many who are 
you know, possibly just leaving the industry. And we can talk about that in another time, but (laughs) (laughs) that's like, that's a whole nother thing in itself, but it does feel like there is this shift. And I'm just curious always on, is that management? You know, is it not? I think it's a combination of both. It's management led, but it's also self advocating for yourself that you want something different. If you don't tell them you want something different, then how are they going to know that you need something different or that you're bored or that you want to go in a different path? Say you have 10 projects on your list and the squeakiest salesperson that's going to come up to you and say, hey, I want my project done. Hey, what are you doing? Are you working on my project? Are you working on my project? Mm-hmm. You're going to do it just to get it done, right? So you need to be that squeaky wheel for yourself or else it's not going to get done. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, it's kind of this two-way street. You, you know, so somebody can come to you and say, but that's your moment. But if you miss that moment, fine, keep going in another moment. That's not your last chance. Right. Yeah. I always say like, is the door open? Because I've had, I've had managers before where like, you know, the door is closed all day. Therefore that's interpreted as like, don't go in there. Yep. I have no problem standing up and knocking on the door and just being like, Hey, do you have a minute? Yeah. But it's amazing how many people don't really want to do that. And I think if you're home too much, or I think that, I think one of the most challenging parts of that would be if you're a hundred percent remote person or if you're a contract person, you know, how do you get visibility when you're not physically visible, right? I mean, there's teams, I get it, but not, you know, is it out? You don't want to get the stigma of out of sight, out of mind. Oh, absolutely. And I assume there are probably designers you've worked with that you've maybe, have you maybe never met some of your designers in person? There were a couple of years that went by before I met them in actual person. Yeah. Yeah. So this past <laughs> year we ha- we hosted a all hands on deck. We flew all of the remote designers in. We've had remote designers since before remote was a thing before COVID. Um, so they came in from five different states and we just had a, hey, nice to see your face that's in 3D and not 2D on a, on a Zoom screen. Um, it was nice. It was great. Did I you feel like there that. was something that you learned about each of them? Yes. Yes. That's Even awesome. if it was just like, hey, what kind of shoes do you wear? Because you never see somebody's shoes, right? I never thought about that. <laughs> I commonly get, because I do so much remote work, I commonly get that people say to me, wow, you're a lot shorter in real life. <laughs> And I mean, it's true. I'm really short. I'm five one and three quarters, by the way. But either way, and I always am wearing heels, but it's very funny that I always get that comment of, yeah. wow, you're really short. I'm like, am I that loud on Zoom? Like, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I just carry a good presence. Uh, yeah. I don't know, Julia, but you know, it, that does start to, after you hear that like more than 10 times, you know that there are real perceptions that are being yeah. developed digitally versus physically. Oh, it's, I'm, I've had this newfound, um, uh, respect for audiobooks. And so all I'm, I'm listening to every audiobook under the sun. And it's funny, a coworker of mine's like, I think it's funny that you judge a book by, oh, it's a 12 hour book. And I judge it by a 400 page <laughs> book. It's like, I don't have time to read, but I have time to listen to this. Um, and it's just, you, you make up the story in your head about how you see this happening. And then if they make a movie, it just ruins it for you, right? Like you it have this it. going in your mind and sort of ruin that perception, but yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. What speed do you listen to your audiobooks? like 1.05. I like okay. the drama books. So it's like, usually there's long pauses and I'm like, okay, no, no, no. Get to the next point. <laughs> I like speed it up a little bit, but yeah. not too much that I'm missing something. My husband came home one time and I had an audiobook on like in the kitchen. I'm making dinner. The kids are someplace else. And he was like, wow, this person has a really weird voice. Like, <laughs> why is there a squirrel yeah he's like why why do they sound so weird I'm like well that's on me I turned it up to like I don't know like 1.5 or like 1.7 and he bossed out laughing and was like 
oh, okay, so this is, you're doing this. Like, this is actually <laughs> you. Yeah, controlling it. To, yeah, it is. Even on Design Pop, I've literally had to make videos for people on, here's how you turn me down. You because I know. Yeah. yeah, like, I, I, here's how you slow me down because I know that I go way too fast for people. And you probably get a different amount of work done in 40 hours than somebody else. And that's okay. Again, yeah, it, okay. human capacity is an incredible thing. What, what advice would you give to your younger self going into this field? Don't get too comfortable, I guess. I don't know. I think that's something that, you know, my my dad was had maybe two career changes in his entire in his entire working experience. And yeah. I think that that was something that sat with me a while is like you start a career and you you work towards that career. And unless something changes, um, you know, you make the best of it. And so, you know, I get these resumes of designers that apply and it's I spent two years here and two years here. And first you're like, whoa, you're a bopper. Yeah. But then, you know, I've, I've learned to not just discard that resume or overlook it. It's like, were you married to a military spouse? Because I 100% understand that one. Um, is it, hey, you weren't with the right manufacturer because the grass isn't, always the same on both sides. I wouldn't say greener or the other, it's just different kinds. Right. Um, and so it, it's interesting to see why they, why they took so many jumps at different times and you know, what they liked from each one and then what they're still looking for. Like, what haven't you found and would we be a good fit for that? Interesting. What happens if your daughter comes to you and says, mom, I think I want to be an interior designer? Oh, I, do. <laughs> I struggle with that one. I struggle with... Um, you know, I want to show her a working mom and trying to have the balance. And she asked me one day and it like near brought me to tears. She's like, how do you do it all? She's like, you have all these, cause I'll bring her into the office or a very family friendly office. And she said, oh, you have all these people that you work with and you come home and then, you know, we get to play and the dog goes for a walk, you know, wow, kid, like you really just put it in perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, but like that's goals right there. I mean, that, I, I, I want to say like hashtag mom goals because I just think of, I don't think my, my kids are not in an age yet where that is something they even recognize. Yeah. Like to them, like, oh, you know, poof, dinner just appears on the table yeah. and, you know, clothes are just like ready for school. Like mm -hmm. everything just happens. And my husband and I work our tails off and we have days where we're looking at each other and we're like, we haven't sat down all day. Like, okay, yeah. we just did, like the other day he went out for like a 21 mile run. He's doing a, another 50K this fall, 21 mile run. And then the rest of the day we spent, you know, like cleaning the house, grocery shopping, yeah. prepping for birthday celebrations, doing all these things. And the next day the kids wake up and it's almost like they're just like, oh, all of these things just appeared. Little elves just were yeah. busy while I was sleeping. And, and they kind of are just, you know, in that moment. And I'm like, oh, when are they going to get it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't want to discourage her. Um, and who knows what it would look like to be a dealer designer, you know, 10, 15 years from now, it would probably be very different. I never saw it being what it was now back in the day. Right. So maybe it would be different. I would, I would be very curious to see what her approach would be. Mm -hmm. Um, cause she's been, you know, thank you COVID. She was home with me and we had big plans and she was highlighting numbers and thought it was great to color in all the panels with different color highlighters. And I think for the longest time she thought mommy <laughs> colored pictures for a living. Cause I just sat there with all my spec checks. Um, yeah, I would be interesting to see what, what she would take away from it. Is she leaning one way or another yet? Uh, right now, we want to be a professional dog walker, so that's okay. All right. Yeah. I, does sound like Sometimes a very appealing job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that sounds highly appealing I because, do. yeah, 
Just yeah. the, the nice fresh air, fluffy dogs. As long as no one's biting, that seems yeah. like a great job. Phenomenal. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So on the topic of your daughter, you said in school, she's learning these yes. very important lessons right now. So it was a back to school we just had for fourth grade, right? Only fourth grade. We're nine and 10 year olds. Um, <laughs> They're still tiny. Yes. They, does she let you cuddle her still? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's, it's right. still tuck in bed. And I, that's, it's, you get the most amount of gossip out of her when she's like stalling to not go to bed yeah. is when all the drama comes out. Oh, this girl said this or this boy said this on the playground or whatever. Um, so back to school night, she is a great teacher, and she said, you know, you got to make sure that you're talking to your kids about their mindset and that it's not a fixed mindset, it's a growth mindset. It's like, okay, you got to dumb that down a little bit for a nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, and I guess in the end, it all relates back to, like, the, everybody knows the movie Rudy, right? Rudy was four foot something and trying to get on the college football team, yep. and everyone's like, you're, you're not made to be a football player. Well, that's fixed mindset, right? Like you're born at your full potential and no matter what you do, that's the only potential you're going to have. But Rudy is your growth mindset, right? I'm going to build my muscles up. I'm going to get faster. I'm going to become what I want to become. And you have to work towards it. You're not born with that topped out, ceiling, maxed out potential. You have to work and, and grow for it. And so keeping that in the mindset of the kids when they're either on the field or you can do better or let's keep practicing. Not like, well, you're not meant to be a goalie. Like you can't say that, right? You have, you could be a goalie <laughs> if you really want to be a goalie. You just have to work towards it. Um, so it's just setting that, that expectation for them up front. And it got me thinking about the design mindset and that I think that so many of us are in a fixed mindset. I'm a dealer designer and I am going to specify this and I'm going to become an expert in specifying this. And then what? And I think that we don't have enough of those growth mindset conversations with them to mm -hmm. get them to think about that as opposed to just, yep, you're right. You're an expert. I, I look at it as the abundance, right? Of there's enough for all. We do not need to be fighting over like one piece of the pie. Right. There is enough, but with enough means you have to evolve. You have to continue to try new things. So I'm curious, we've seen the ways that dealer designers have been able to evolve. Mm -hmm. um, many say the same. How do you open up the conversation? It, I think it's touch points, you know, the quarterly check-ins that we're, we're starting to do. Um, finding out what their fortes are. Like, hey, does this production designer have large scale projects, but their detailed finish packets and their sign off sheets are just above and beyond and don't skip a beat on any detail. Like, is that an avenue that they can go down and they see something a little bit differently than somebody who's doing reconfigures, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. a whole other mindset of, I want to use every part and piece and nut and bolt to make this work without spending a penny as opposed to, I want to create a really pretty rendering and create this new conceptual space that's never been done before in an office. So it's figuring out where, where do they want to spend their time throughout the day? We don't, there's so many different ways and it's not just, you know, the areas and the ways we're designing, but it's the technology, right? There's different softwares that are coming yeah. out. That's broadened the horizons. You can specialize in that. Um, just training us, right? I mean, you found yeah. that forte. We need somebody who can do that. And, you know, there's different avenues to go down. Well, and I think it's also, it's a challenge because then your business has to, you know, rise to meet them as well yes. with their needs. What I find though is that many designers don't know what the pathway is. And I don't know that there is just one. I think that this could be multifactorial, like you said, on specialty, on interest, et cetera. But the truth is the industry really hasn't generated these positions for them either. I mean, what are the titles that we normally see? It's junior designer, designer, senior designer. Those are the traditional. Yep. Yep. If you're good, 
maybe you'll be a manager someday. And I agree with you on the thinking of just because you're a great designer does not mean that you are going to be a great manager. I think that's a different skill set in itself. In in many organizations, that's kind of what's looked at. And then what? I mean, now we started started to see people who are doing, if it is an ancillary specialist, Mm -hmm. I've seen technical specialists. I've seen people who are like a creative type title of some sort where, or maybe a Maybe it's a quick response team, right? There's plenty of people who There's are doing- There's a whole niche of our market that needs that, right? I need this tomorrow. I need this by you know end of day. That it's like, do you understand how much goes into that to get right. it by the end of the day? And if I don't clear my entire plate and push everybody else's, that's not going to happen. So having somebody who could just put a call them a firefighter, you know, put out all the fires throughout the day, that takes a special mindset too. Yeah. Even you and I just recently, recently met with Eric from Chicago, and he is someone who only responds to bids. Just phenomenal. That's a whole, it's a, a specific, you know, which which kind of bids are you applying to? Is it a VE bid? Are you in for cost? Are you in for um, meeting the specs T for T for a GSA project? You know, it's, yes. it's each one in itself is going to be different. That gets into all these other side conversations too of who should actually be looking at a go or no go strategy on RFPs and bids. I mean, in all honesty, I don't know that that should always be a manager or a leader. Sometimes that has to be brought to a designer to go really deep in the weeds and be like, can we turn a profit? And as much as I don't want designers to be focused on discounting and margin always, right. truth is sometimes they have to just to assess if it's even a viable response to be How many specials is it going to take to meet the spec? And is it worth it financially to go through those specials or the lead time? Are we still going to be able to meet those goals? So yeah, I think their designers, I should be a part of the no-go or go. Yeah. Decisions. Right. And I mean, those are all ways that they can be, you stay within, I think, a dealership and still grow into specialties. Mm-hmm. Did you ever consider deviating from the dealer world? Yes. Um, it was, it was kind of an opportunity that was brought to me. Um, I did have an offer at one point in my career to go to Gensler. And that was a big uh, week of butterflies in my stomach of, you know, which way is your career path going to go? I think this would be two different directions. Um, I was still trying to get down the working mom schedule and, you know, wanting to be there and the flexibility. And I had worked so hard to build up the relationship I had in my current position um, with my current employer. I didn't want to have to, I felt like the only way I could gain back that respect would be pulling all-nighters all over again and staying up really late and staying in the office really late. And I didn't that can't be the you know how you show your true value to a company. So I think that was part of my deterrent. Yeah, from that. Since I've never worked in an A and D setting, I very commonly will think about if I were to if I would have gone into an A and D firm, what would keep me there? Are you always driven by just that creative value that you're contributing? Mm-hmm. Are you driven by money? Are you driven by visibility? Because there are so many more opportunities to be visible working for an A&D firm. Yeah. That I, I sometimes, yeah, I used to always wonder, like, what keeps them there? But then you flip it on its head and go, oh my gosh, as a dealer designer, yeah. unless your organization is going to give you visibility, and like, let's say that's your love language, that you need to be yep. published in a magazine, Yep. You're probably never going to be affirmed. And I think that you've actually scratched that itch for me a couple of times, whether you know it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, not know that. <laughs> you and I were going back and forth about, you know, frustrations of the industry and, and your, you know, 2018 Rise of the Dealer Designer quotes within an article. Um, 
you know, there's still that we, we have a lot to bring to the table. We have so much more to offer. And so I told you I had this thing I had been writing and I didn't know what to do with it. And you're like, oh, we should publish it. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, no, no, no. This is just like the <laughs> secrets of a dealer designer and how I feel about it. I forgot. Um, that was your car, um, car mechanic article, yes. right? So it was, you know, you joke about is, do you need visibility? Do you need to be published in interior design magazine? Maybe, maybe you want a picture of like, look at this beautiful space I created, or maybe it's just, Hey, my voice was heard. Um, and then now, I mean, the podcast is getting my voice heard. So you've, you've done that twice now for me, whether you know it or not. Good. I'm really glad about that. But what's crazy is how many people I've had to quote literally anonymously because they don't, they want to participate, but they don't want their name tied to it. I think there's a fear that resonates along with that. And it shouldn't be. And I would say that's, that's one of the biggest difference dealership to dealership is, you know, maybe it's even the same major um, alignment with the manufacturer, but it's a different dealership. It's a different management um, or principles that run it because I've interviewed people who say, oh, you, you get to go to Neocon? And I was like, well, yeah. How else are you going to see what's going on in this year? Like, oh, they're afraid we're going to find a new job if we go. Yeah. And it's just working for a dealership that understands that the more they invest in you and you invest in them, it's a mutual beneficial relationship. Let's grow together. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that have moved different departments. They've gone from design to sales or design to project management and just understanding the industry in a full big picture. Um, and having a dealership that's open to that is a big deal. So I think that if you're, if their designers feeling stunted in the growth of the dealership they're in, I think you have to look at the overall dealership approach and to where you can grow within that. And if it's not within that dealership, maybe it's a larger dealership. Maybe it's one that's got multiple locations, um, but just how their, their perception of design and what they can contribute. Yeah. Yep. What I've found even is this continuous learner thing. I feel like how many people in our parents' generation maybe went to college and then they're done. They're learning. They would then learn on the job. Right. And they always had their eyes open to other opportunities, but maybe there were not mechanisms for them to continue to learn versus now, okay, so, you know, obviously this is something that I love to talk about is Design Pop website because you can go and self-serve and yep. find what you need when you need it. Yep, on demand. I do think that that on-demand component is really appealing to other generations where they're like, hey, I can keep learning no matter what. And that also might keep them intrigued in their job because if they used to do something in 10 minutes, now it only takes five what are you going to do with the other five? Yeah, maybe you can actually go for a walk for five minutes <laughs> or actually get a snack or drink of water. I mean, yeah. how many designers are not eating and drinking because they're too stressed? Like, there's it's actually sad. a lot of them. It's, it's really sad. I remember doing that um, early in my career. I'd be like, oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm like, how did I get up two hours ago and just get something to drink? You're not glued to your seat. It's not that bad. Nobody held you down. No. For some reason, you're just, I think that's part of the creative industry of it too, right? I think so too. I think you just get so heads down in that moment of, yep. oh my gosh, I have to just make sure the cantilevers are perfect, but then you forget. And I think that was something that my husband and I joke about back in college. He was like, why, why do you spend all night working on these projects until the last minute? Can't you time management before then? You, you, you should get it done before the morning of. And it's like, even if I did, there's, I could do just a little bit more. Or I could create just one more hand-drawn rendering yes. or something. So um, we would affectionately call it my drawing monsters because I would have, I would turn into this different drawing person that would just, I can do more. I can do more. And I think that's part of a designer thing. Oh, I think so too. I'm the worst on. at that because I think of, and now with the website, it's really bad because I have my moments where I'll sit down and for, for video creation, it's not bad for me. I kind of, yeah. you know, I create the video and then it's done. I feel good about it. I'm able to move on, yeah. but I'm insecure about the written word. And I also want to have full creative control over graphics all the time, but I'm not a graphic designer. Yeah. 
And so I need to engage with other people and I do engage with other people. But if it's left up to just me, that I, I turn into the monster where it's it's like back to design churn, you know, 10 yeah. years ago where, okay, it's done, but is it done? Nope, I could just perfect this a little bit. And then I'm sucked in for 30 minutes and then I've lost I think that's how much a, effort. that's a trait that all designers carry, you know, as far as not being able to cut the cord or to yeah. maybe we have trust issues. I don't know. Um, you know, when you get a contractor involved, you know, it's something that we've utilized is an outsourced designer to ebb and flow with the workflow that comes in. And People say, oh, no, 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 by the time I explain it to them, I could have it done already. Could you? Could you really lay out three floors in the time that it takes you to say, hey, contractor, outsource design, this is what the typical is. Can you just populate it? Yes, you're going to have to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. But if it gets you that much closer, yeah, let it go, right? You know, it's uh, the rendering side of things when we're doing bids, you know, often we'll also outsource the rendering side of things. You get it to a certain point, and I could nitpick every color of the green leaf on a tree, in the background when the focus is really the furniture and meeting the specs, or you can let it go and let somebody, you know, go into the whole 3D Studio Max or visualization tools or whatever it is that they're doing because that's their expertise. And I yeah. think that, you know, you talk about going back to school and this continually learning thing. I think that sometimes until you're in the industry, you don't know what your next degree should be in or a certification until you live it. You know, I think that was a big yeah. part of my college um, decision was there was a co-op experience. It was mandatory. And so we went out in the field, I think it was our sophomore, junior year, and you got to experience interior design life. And half of the people came back and were like, nope, not for me. I don't want to do it. And it's like, great that you figured that out now and not yeah, actually job. have this degree in interior design. And then you realize you don't like it. Right. right. So, um, I think that's a, that's an important factor to figure out what your next steps are too. That's really important and very interesting. Cause yeah, I, I actually sometimes will reflect. I take this step back. I'm like, what are the pivotal moments in life for me? And as much as it would normally be something like, oh, I got a promotion or I got a bonus, it's not. Like my pivotal yeah. moments have shaken out to be really interesting from the standpoint of, I think if I would have never um, chosen to be bilingual and moved to Spain, yeah. I would have never been hired by Configura. Yeah. I probably would have never gone down this technology training pathway. And if I wouldn't have, this sounds really weird because it wasn't a choice that I probably would go back and maybe say yes to again. But if I wouldn't have gone into commercial real estate and worked for CBRE, it would not have given me the outside perspective on furniture to then want to reemerge in this industry. Yep. Yeah, it's to stuff become like, that advocate for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like that kind of stuff where I remember being nine months pregnant and being in a, a presentation for commercial real estate technology and being like, wow, how does this impact furniture people? And then I had a baby a week later and the whole world changed, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, I, I, yeah. let's figure this out now. How does the so, pandemic affect what we're doing? I mean, it, it just happens. It just does, that you can't plan it all. But I think that is the challenge with a career trajectory is so many of us are raised going, okay, so what are we going to do when we grow up? Yep. And it's like, what are you going to do in the next 10 years? What's the next 10 years going to do to us? <laughs> Right? Is it pandemic the sequel? Is it, you know, what's the next the next cutting edge thing? Yeah, in our careers so far, you, okay, so we're almost the same age, I think. So we've dealt with, you know, 9-11, yep. late, in, late, late in high school. Mm -hmm. Then we had the recession shortly after graduating from college. Trying to get a job in the recession, yeah. Yep. I, I was lucky. I got one like two years before the recession hit, so I was a little bit more future-proofed. Um, and then you look at, yeah, COVID. I mean, that is a lot to happen in the last... 20 years. And I remember as a kid being like, oh man, why is everybody talking about like, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Oh yeah. Just, 
Just yeah. wait. A lot has happened in our lives. <laughs> yes. And more to come, right? And I think that's where some of the evolution of career growth is just organic. What's going to come next? Julia, thank you so much for sharing your design and leadership wisdom and also for allowing us to expose who really cooks dinner and keeps plans alive at your house. <laughs> there was one last note that Julia made before we wrapped up this interview, and I think many of you will find it interesting. I think there's a stigma between design and sales is that the harder a salesperson works, the more commission they can make. So what's in it for a designer to work harder? What's in it for them to work past 40 hours? You know, where's their skin in the game? <laughs> yep, I agree. Does this seem like something interesting that you would want to know more about? Mm, if so, stay tuned. I'm working on putting together information on incentives. And it's not just because of this interview, but also because I've gotten a lot of emails about this topic recently. Similar to what I did for our ancillary report back in September, I will be releasing a survey on social media in December and would love your input. Follow along and let's just see how common incentives really are for dealer designers. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a rating or review from you or just reach out and say hi. It's one of the best ways you can support this podcast. I'm Alexandra Cephas. Thanks for listening. 